not fooling anybody, Bender. The next screw that falls out is going to be you. Eat my shorts. What was that? Eat my shorts. You just bought yourself another Saturday, mister. Oh, crushed. You just bought one more right there. Well, I'm free the Saturday after that. Beyond that, I'm going to have to check my calendar. Good, because it's going to be filled. We'll keep going. You want another one? Say the word. Just say the word. Instead of going to prison, you'll come here. Are you through? No. I'm doing society a favor. So? That's another one right now. I've got you for the rest of your natural born life if you don't watch your step. You want another one? Yes. You got it. You got another one right there. That's another one, pal. Cut it out. You through? Not even close. Bye. Good. You got one more right there. You really think I give a shit? Another. You through? How many is that? That's seven, including the moment we first came in. You asked Mr. Vernon here whether Barry Mandelon knew that he raided his closet. Now it's eight. You stay out of it. Excuse me, sir. It's seven. Shut up, Pee Wee. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Praised as a quintessential piece of 80s cinema and highly regarded among the greatest high school movies of all time, the legacy of this 80s flick had endured due to the film's eclectic cast of teenage archetypes. Writer-director John Hughes' characters weren't just derivative personalities found in the everyday, run-of-the-mill teen comedy of the day. The characters were actually rooted in genuine human problems. Working with a $1 million budget, the reflective character study was an endearing portrait of adolescence, simplistic in its approach, but emotionally rich in a contrasting, multi-dimensional view each personality. For all its cliches, the film has lasted through the generation, with newer directors calling it an inspirational work. So grab your sack lunch or your sushi rolls and head to the biggest high school library I've ever seen as Laramie Wells and I mess with the bull and get the horns while we discuss The Breakfast Club from 1985 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. I'm glad to have the creator and host of the Moving Panels podcast, Mr. Laramie Wells. Welcome, Laramie. How you doing? I, I am good. I this whoo, this is going to be a fun one to talk about. I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna open up with that. Yeah, uh, we'll give you fair warning going into this one that this was this was not at the, the top of Laramie nor I's uh, favorite '80s movie list. So if you're a big big fan of this movie, you know we're not gonna you know tear it to shreds. Not gonna bash that, it. We, no, no, we're not gonna bash it. But uh, we're just not as big big of fans. But there's great behind the scenes stuff stories about it. Let's just jump right in. So when did you see Breakfast Club for the first time, Laramie? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the part of the 80s flick flashback in which host Laramie Wells tells you how he saw it on television uh, one Saturday morning <laughs> or, you know, week weekend on, you know, Channel 36 here in Atlanta. 
Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, that, yeah. That was probably honestly it. Day. That or you know TBS or something. I know I saw yeah. it on television. And you saw the edited version, I'm sure, because oh, yeah. it's much. I'm sure that was much different than. Uh, I still than the, watching unfed. it this time was shocked by the number of f words. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty strong, and uh, for that reason, I can say this is not one that I saw in the theater as a as a youngster, I guess, or it was really not on my radar. Like I, you know, and this is kind of the first of John Hughes written and directed films that we talked that we're going to talk about on the 80s flashback. So of course I saw 16 candles. I've seen Ferris Bueller's day off, but really that's a, and that's about it as far as his, I mean, I think I've saw pretty in my sister saw 16 candles first and then I saw it, but Ferris Bueller is kind of like the quintessential John Hughes for me because it really wasn't on my radar. I didn't see this one until I was much older. And so, and I don't even think, I think I saw it on TV. I don't think I saw the theatrical cut or the, you know, the unedited version until I was well into college. Uh, and maybe even, no, I think it was college when I finally sat down and watched it from beginning to end. So how long yeah. had it been since you saw it for this one? Uh, I honestly couldn't tell you. I think like you're talking about with college, you know, that's when I started building my movie collection. And this right. is one that I just bought just because it was one that you're going, yeah, everybody's got to have the breakfast club if you're going to have a yeah, movie collection. Yeah. So, right. you know, I bought it then. I know I probably watched it around then and it very well could have been, I haven't watched it since college to be honest. <laughs> I'm kind of with you. I think, I think I bought a copy of this probably like a used copy from a video store or something that had it on sale. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm building my movie collection. I'll, I'll buy this one and probably didn't even watch it. I just had it in my collection for a while before I finally actually watched it. So, yeah. uh, but but it's been, gosh, it's been at least 15, at least 15 years since I've watched it before watching it for the podcast. Yeah, because and we talk about this a lot since I talk about watching them on television. This is one, you talked about Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's a movie that if I was flipping through the channels, I'd stop and watch a few minutes of it. Breakfast mm -hmm. Club is one that if I'm flipping through the channels, I keep flipping. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, yeah, because it doesn't have, and, and I will get into this, uh, we'll kind of, I'll, we'll preach about it now, but it's watching it again this felt like i was watching a play uh paint dry oh the, sorry <laughs> you know because it's one setting it's a lot of dialogue i mean there's not a lot of action for lack of a yeah. better word or you know change of scenery so it does slow the pace down a lot and it just you just listen to people talking which you know for which a lot of people consider it a independent film that became a blockbuster because of that, because when we're the million dollar budget and because it wasn't the typical teen comedy of the day. Yeah, you're going to have to tell me that. Where did they spend a million dollars on that? <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, they built the the uh, library is actually the gymnasium because the library <laughs> yeah. from the school they were going to use was too small. So they had to rebuild that entire library. So that's going to cost money, not a million dollars. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Production costs. Yeah, it's one set. <laughs> Uh, there, I mean, not a lot in costumes. They're wearing the same clothes the entire movie. Mm -hmm. uh, only the, I guess, what? There's six actors. Well, seven, counting the janitor. You know. Right. So, yeah. Where's the millions? I could, talking about us being theater people, like, we could have shot this. Ham, let me pull out my iPhone 12 and <laughs> we can shoot this. No problem. All right. Well, let's jump into the story origin and pre-production. Maybe we'll... We'll find out. I don't think we will, but it'll maybe it'll give us a little bit more insight into where the money went. So, 
with the commercial success of Mr. Mom, the Michael Keaton comedy that John Hughes had written the script for, he was offered a three-year, $30 million contract with Universal Pictures. So John Hughes wrote the screenplay to The Breakfast Club in just two days on July 4th and 5th, of 1982. He had originally optioned the script for The Breakfast Club to A&M Films in 1982 and agreed to make the movie for $1 million, limiting production to a single location with an ensemble cast. However, the project was put on hold, and while it was in limbo, Hughes wrote four feature films between 1982 and 1984, including what would become his directorial debut, 16 Candles. Producer Ned Tannen, who had recently left the presidency at Universal, agreed to absorb The Breakfast Club into the deal on condition that 16 Candles be released first. John Hughes said getting the film greenlit by Universal wasn't easy because the executives complained there were no bare breasts, no party scene, no guys drinking beer or other things they thought a teenage picture needed at that time. Which I thought was pretty interesting because you look at the teen, what they consider the teen movies before this, but Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's, Fast <laughs> yeah. Times at Ridgemont High. Because those hold up so well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to be this part of those a, episodes. a big difference. So. <laughs> uh, those, come, those are going to come way, way later down the line. <laughs> so according to the casting director, Jackie Birch, the original script went under the name The Lunch Bunch, thanks to the son of one of Hughes' friends who attended New Trier, I don't know if it's New Trier or New Trier, high school in Northfield, Illinois, the name was changed. As the story goes, sometime during the New, New Tears school history, the students and staff created the designated breakfast clubs for early detention. Hughes, having attended school in Illinois, gravitated towards the newer title. New Trier High School also played a prominent role in many other 80s teen dramas, serving as a shooting location for films such as 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Weird Science. On the Ferris Bueller's Day Off DVD commentary, Hughes revealed that he shot the two films concurrently to save time and money, and some outtakes of both films feature elements of the film crews working on That's it. When Hughes started production on The Breakfast Club in March 1984 with an indie movie budget of $1 million, about $2.5 million adjusted for inflation, his debut feature, 16 Candles, wouldn't even hit theaters for another two months. The teen film was, at that point, rooted more in sensationalism with oversexed comedies like Losing It, Porky's, and Risky Business, dominating the genre. Even genuinely great movies like Fast Times at Ridgemont High had an emphasis on shock value. That film featured R-rated nudity and a hard-hitting abortion plotline. That was kind of the norm for the teen comedies or, you know, comedy dramas at the time. Sixteen Candles, a coming-of-age tale about a high school sophomore, also played by Molly Ringwald, coping with a crush and her chaotic family was sort of a proto-breakfast club with a simple story driven by deeper characterization but it's much more fizzy and action-packed than its successor. Rife with slapstick comedy and some very broad, uncomfortable racial humor centered on the exchange student character of Long Duck Dong. Uh-huh. So we'll get, we'll get into that when we get to 16 Candles. Never I guess it's just it. showing... Never seen it yet. No. It just goes to show that they wanted him to make that one first because it was more typical of the teen comedies at the time. So there, there, A little bit of that did make its way into Breakfast Club. Though. I mean, the... A little bit, yeah. The bender underneath the table. Um, yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's definitely yeah. something that honestly probably didn't need to be in the movie. No, no. And Molly Ringwald, who was sixteen at the time, she turned seventeen during filming. Yeah. So and Judd uh, Hirsch was what twenty five, twenty four, twenty twenty four. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was not her in that scene. They had to, they used a double. Because of course Molly Ringwald's mom was there and said, "No, we're not going to we're not going to use my daughter for that scene." So that was <laughs> good, good for to her. Know. <laughs> 
So, and there was also a scene that I hope they didn't even ask. Like that. Now I'm thinking, right? Like I just don't want them to have asked for the mom to have said anything. No. Right. Exactly. So, but we're talking about it like a stage play. So it says, you know, some of the things I read. It said the movie is basically a stage play unfolding in a series of close-ups, but that didn't stop stop from becoming a box office hit. But John Hughes said that before filming began, the cast rehearsed the entire movie a few times as if it were a play. And after the film became a hit, Hughes was asked to rewrite the script as a play so high schoolers could actually perform it for their drama presentations. So uh, I'm sure he took a lot of that stuff out. High school kids, especially back in the 80s, they weren't going to get away with a lot of that. Yeah, I probably would tolerate it, though, as a play than I did. And I kind of felt that way, too. It's like if if I would have seen this in the theater in a live setting, I think some of the things would have impacted me a little bit more so than it does in the film. Not bashing Hughes in any way, shape, or form, because I think he shot it well. I think you lost some of that intimacy to the film that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, I get you. All right, well, let's jump into casting. That's always fun. Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall both starred in Hughes' 1984 film, 16 Candles, which we talked about already. Towards the end of filming, Hughes asked them both to be in The Breakfast Club. Hall became the first to be cast, agreeing to the role of Brian Johnson. His real-life mother and sister can be seen playing the roles of his mother and sister at the beginning of the film when they drop him off at school. Molly Ringwald was originally asked to play Allison, even though she wanted to play Claire. She eventually convinced John Hughes in the studio and was given the part. Although there's some dissension on this, other cast and crew members have said Molly was originally cast as Claire, but tried to pressure the student Hughes to let her play the punk goth chick, Allison. But Hughes put his foot down and said, no, she was wrong for the part. She had to stick to Claire. But Ringwald disagrees with this and says she'd had her sights on Claire the whole time. Since Claire was so unlike her, so unlike anything she'd played before, and she had a handle on Claire basing her on her sister. Molly said Hughes had pushed her to do Allison, but the psycho eccentric outsider chick was too much like the role she'd played in 16 Candles, the movie Tempest in 1982, as well as Surviving in 1985 and other movies, and that she wanted to play, she wanted to try something new, and eventually Hughes relented and let her play Claire. Other actresses who auditioned for the role of Claire included Robin Wright, Jodie Foster, and Laura Dern. Huh. No Robin Wright. She had to, her no. first had to be Princess Bride. That I agree. I makes, agree. Yeah. The fact that I haven't seen 16 Candles or Pretty in Pink, pretty much right. my my only like connection to this age Molly Ringwald is Breakfast Club. And so it's hard for right. me to imagine that she plays any different type of character. Like I would just assume that her character in those other two movies are also the you know, prissy princess girl. But again, I, I haven't seen the other movie, so that kind of surprises me. Yeah. In 16 Candles, she is much more bratty. It's like a competition with her and her sister. And it's been a, it's been a good while since I've seen 16 Candles. So I, it's not crystal clear in my memory. But she does have a little bit more attitude. She's not quite as prissy in 16 Candles. But like you, I haven't seen Pretty in Pink. Or if, I, if I've seen it, it, I've only seen it once. And it was way, way back when. I think she pretty much played kind of the same character she does in Breakfast Club. Jodie Foster... Not, I don't think that would have worked. Laura no. Dern is possible. Thinking back to back then, but even though I don't know, I think I think she I think she fit the role pretty well out of those choices anyway. Yeah. 
comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Ali Sheedy had first auditioned for the part of Samantha Baker in 16 Candles, which went to Molly Ringwald. When Sheedy auditioned, she had two black eyes from a set building accident. The black eyes gave her a dark gothic image, which stayed with John Hughes. When it was time to cast the part of Allison, Hughes remembered and called Sheedy. They also said that he was uh, impressed with her performance in war games as well. So Now see, that's a role that Jodie Foster probably could have played. Definitely. The, the Allison is a little bit more darker. I, I, that, I'm with you. Jodie Foster would have played that role really well, I think. Moving on, Emilio Estevez originally auditioned for the role of John Bender. However, when Hughes was unable to find someone to play the jock, Andrew Clark, Estevez was recast. If John Hughes couldn't get Emilio Estevez to play the role of Andrew, he would have considered casting Michael J. Fox, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise, Matthew Broderick, or Rob Lowe, who all had initially auditioned for a role in the film. Tom Cruise and Rob Lowe are the only two in that list that would have pulled off a jock. True. I could see Michael J. Fox being more of Anthony Michael Hall's character. Yeah. Even though I think Anthony Michael Hall was kind of perfectly cast for that. Jim Carrey, I mean, his name popped up on a lot. I, I was actually surprised when I first saw his name pop up. I was like, oh, that's probably just some bad rumors. But it showed up on several different sites that I was reading about. So I was like, man, he, he must have really auditioned for that one uh, hmm. way before way before his prime. So, yeah, I, I could see like Rob Lowe and Tom Cruise are definitely would be better cast in that for the athletic pure athletics athleticism i guess uh but also coming off the outsiders that would given that would have given the the movie a little bit more name recognition in the cast as well and then i can't remember if, if risky business had come out already because that was really kind of tom Cruise's breakout role after the outsiders so when did i i'm not i've never seen me when did uh all the right moves come out that was early 80s as well that might that might have been like 82 or 83 i don't think that that i don't think that one was quite because that was before Risky Business Tour. So that might have been, I don't know if that was the same time as Outside, because Outsiders was like 83, 82, 83, because that was before Machio did Karate Kid, which was 84. Yeah, because so. I'm, I'm just thinking that, that that era of Tom Cruise, the All the Right Moves, the Outsiders, um, mm-hmm. Taps, like. Oh, yeah. yeah. That Tom yeah. Cruise taps would definitely. Taps was like 81, 82, yeah. That yeah. Tom Cruise would definitely and, be the jock. Yeah. And one thing about this one, once Emilio Estevez was cast, he switched the jock from being a football player to being a wrestler. Because I think Emilio someone so to kind of, Yeah. Well, also, he said he felt like the, the, the football jock was already overdone in the teen movies. So he was trying to find a, another sport um, to give that jock. Maybe, maybe Cruz decided not to do it because he had just done all the right moves and played the jock football player. I don't know. We're totally speculating at this point. I have. I have no basis to back that up. Just a thought. So, all right, moving on to John Bender. This is a name that caught my attention. Nicholas Cage was initially considered for the role of John Bender, but that he was deemed so too expensive fun. at the time. Yeah, yeah. He was deemed too expensive at the time. I think he had done. I know he had done Valley Girl. 
No, let's see. He had done. Uh, he was in Fast Times Ridge Mount High, but it was a, it was early in that one. Peggy Sue got married. This was before. Yeah, Peggy Sue got married. But Valley Girl was kind of like his breakout. I think at that point, this might have been around the same time he was coming off of that one. So he's probably a little bit more expensive. So, but Bender was actually the last role to be cast, and the final rounds of auditions narrowed down to John Cusack and Judd Nelson. Judd Nelson's clothes in the movie are the outfit he actually auditioned in. Hughes originally cast Cusack, but decided to replace him with Nelson just before shooting began because Cusack did not look threatening enough for the role, according to Hughes. Yeah, I like John Cusack. I mean, I've enjoyed all the teen movies that he made after this, so I don't think it hurt him in any way, but I agree. I don't think Cusack has the threatening look that Judd Nelson has. But I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of Judd Nelson as this character in this role either. Yeah, I, what's funny is you said uh, Judd Nelson, and I realized earlier in the podcast I called him Judd Hirsch, and that's the guy from Taxi. Um, <laughs> I totally missed that. Yeah, but honestly, Judd Hirsch, Judd Nelson, Judge Reinhold, uh, they're, they're interchangeable. Um, right, right. Yeah, my thing All was, as we talked about, you know, I mentioned him being 24 earlier. Mm-hmm. It didn't work for me because I'm looking at him going, dude, you're 30. Like... Yeah, you can see the five o'clock shadow breaking through the the uh, makeup every once in a while. Yeah, and especially when he's you know face to face with you know clean cut Vernon baby faced oh. Emilio Estevez or oh yeah the actual you know sixteen year old Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall right yeah it just it stuck out it really they all needed to be probably within you know a three four year age range. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him to be pushing eight, nine years older, a couple of, it just didn't work. Judd Nelson chose the method acting approach and stayed in character off camera. Oh. Stories have been told that his off-screen antics included bullying Molly Ringwald. This became a problem and she asked John Hughes to have him fired and the character recast. But veteran actor and Paul Gleason, who played uh, Richard Vernon, defended Nelson saying that he was a very good actor and was only trying to stay in character to make his performance more authentic. I've never heard a lot of good, positive things coming out of actors that do method acting. And there's some contradicting stories there as well, because some say that Molly Ringwald didn't care. And John Hughes was the one that wanted uh, Judd Nelson fired. And then others say, no, it was the other way around. So I'm not sure who really wanted him gone, whether it was Ringwald or Hughes. But he almost got fired. That's that's the basis of that story. Is that his method acting did not did not go over well with one or both of them during the filming. I'm sure Cusack would have been happy to jump on a plane and come finish it if it did go down that way. Last to be cast, Paul Gleason was cast as Vice Principal Vernon because John Hughes liked him in Trading Places, and of course we know he went on to even better fame in Die Hard. Oh yeah, so check out that episode. Go of, back to that episode. Yeah. Yeah, go back to Die Hard and listen to that episode. We had fun with that one. So we talked about the ages. This is kind of gives everybody's age here. So Judd Nelson was, yeah, you, you got it right. It was 25 years old at the time of filming. Ringwald was 16 years old. Her 17th birthday was only three days after the film's release. Emilio Estevez was 23 years old. Anthony Michael Hall, 16 years old. And Ali Sheedy, 23 years old. And there's also some speculation that Hall and Ringwald were dating during the filming of this because... They were both the same age at the time. So wait, just because they were the same age, there's a rumor that they were dating. Like, uh, yeah, this, yeah, oh, they're, that's, the, that, yeah. they're the same age. They must be dating. <laughs> Something like that. 
So Rick Moranis was originally cast to play the janitor. Hmm. He uh, grew a thick beard and decided to play the character with a thick Russian accent. John Hughes planned to let Moranis reinterpret the character, but producer Ned Tannen so vehemently opposed Moranis' comical creative liberties that he had Rick replaced with John Capellas. I absolutely love Rick. Uh, he is a, an American treasure, even though he's Canadian. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I think it would have been a waste, honestly. Um, he, he would have been too big for that role, in my opinion. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it just it wasn't as significant enough of a part. And no. his, his quirkiness would have stood out in that movie. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, as much it, as I love yeah. Rick Moranis, it wouldn't have worked. It would have taken it in a totally different direction and would have totally changed the mood of the movie because it would have been so, uh, it would totally been there for comic relief. It would have diminished some of the dramatic things that he, that Hughes was trying to convey, even though once again, it's, it's gotta be a small part. Um, cause even the gender only has really what two, two scenes, three, maybe Yeah, two with actual dialogue, I think. But so, yeah. I can see why I was recast. And I think John Capellas did a great job. He's been yeah. a good actor in a lot of different things. So definitely, definitely a great character actor because I, I had forgotten about him. And then I saw him pop. I haven't seen his name and his face pop up in other stuff that I've been researching. So it's like, he's been in a lot of movies and he's played a lot of different types of characters. So well, kudos to him. Any characters uh, stand out as a favorite? Uh, no, <laughs> just <laughs> no. <laughs> Again, these. This is this this is the pessimistic Laramie in this episode. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, but honestly, these these characters to me are just so flat. They're even even though I think like Anthony Michael Hall's character is supposed you're supposed to have some you know sympathy, pity, whatever you want to call it for. Mm-hmm. I just I did from beginning to end. I do not care about any. Yeah of these characters i get a glimmer of it in one scene which you know we can talk about later because i know you'll ask about favorite scene um Mm -hmm. got a glimmer of it in one scene but just overall i'm just like i i I didn't care uh yeah so but if you want me to pick who was my favorite uh it it was um it was paul gleason (laughs) and being a school teacher i could see that (laughs) (laughs) oh i would not be that type of school teacher. good lord no no i know yeah as a high school teacher i'm watching some of the stuff he's doing just going oh no right right it's like it's knowing that you were going to be on this episode to me back when we talked about summer school another uh fun pun fun past podcast but uh episode yeah but those are two different types of bad teachers (laughs) yeah yeah exactly but even the beginning of this one and seeing some of the things that he's doing like i'm i was like how are you so detached from what they're doing this whole day i mean you don't want them to talk but they're they're practically yelling at each other across the hall and you don't hear them you don't you don't come and check on them every 30 minutes or whatever so i just thought it was interesting and then I felt bad for him too. It's like, you know, it's bad enough. You've got kids at detention on Saturday, but you're there on your off day stuck in your office, you know, well, you say that, but then we see him just kind of like, you know, strolling down the hallways, just, you know, like, Hey, (laughs) all right. You know, like like he's happy to be there. And, but I was thinking the same thing because I did work at a high school where they had, they had Saturday, um, Mm -hmm. but it only was morning. Um, right. Wasn't all day. Yeah, this one was all day, and I'm just really. Uh, yeah. And of course, the the uh, the school I worked at that had the Saturday it was called Saturday Work Detail is what it was actually called. Okay. 
and the the students they weren't didn't just sit in a room like they walked around mm-hmm. the campus of the school and all that picked up trash um anything like that like they you know pretty much they put them to work yeah that makes a little bit more sense to give them something to do i mean honestly because i think when he said you're gonna be here for eight hours i mean even i just like eight hours my gosh it's longer than an actual school day yeah how do you expect them to sit in silence for eight hours you can't that's not feasible you cannot expect (laughs) that out of high schoolers or anybody right I couldn't imagine 40-year-olds be put in a room and they could <laughs> sit quiet for that long. Right. I couldn't do it. And this is, you know, this is before cell phones, and handheld video games and everything else that kids today would have. They'd go crazy if they didn't have a device in their hand. But, and that's what I was going to say, going back to kind of what you were saying a few minutes ago, the thing I think the problem with this movie is for us, especially watching it, because it's, it's not tied to some nostalgic, you know, memory of ours growing up it doesn't age well or it did not age well because these characters are not developed enough. I don't see myself in any of them. Yeah. Uh, Like I, like maybe, maybe the kids did that saw it when at that age or whatever, but I can understand why, why people consider it so ground. And I say groundbreaking, that's pretty, probably too broad, but why it's well loved uh, for the type of movie that is because it did something different that people didn't think would succeed. And because it succeeded, it has that going for it, but I don't think it, I don't think it ages well today. Agreed. All right, well, let's jump into favorite scenes. I know you mentioned one scene that you thought about. Well, well, now here's the difference. There's favorite scene because I enjoy it. And then there's favorite scene because I'm going, this is what this movie should have been. So so I'm going to start with that. So the, the scene in which I'm watching it going... This is what this movie should have been was when they're mm-hmm. sitting in the catwalk balcony area and they're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, why they're there. Yes. And we yep. get we get, um, you know, them all talking about it. And then Anthony Michael Hall gets starts the conversation of what happens on Monday. Mm-hmm. And yes. and, you know, Molly Ringwald tells them, you know, we're going to we're not going to be friends anymore. I'm going to ignore you and you know, all that. That's just the way it is. And I'm going, this is what this movie needed to be. You know, this is the real, you know, like you just talked about. Mm -hmm. This is no matter what decade, whatever that you went to high school, that is an experience everybody has. Right, right. You know, is is going to camp for the summer and becoming real good friends with a person. And then you get to school and you're in two different cliques, two different groups, and Mm -hmm. you don't talk anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. that really happens. And you're right. And that's 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 a much more universal story, not just for teenagers, but that's in any any area of life. I mean, you have a work assignment or you go on a trip or you, you know, like we've, we've been plays together and, you know, you and I have stayed, can remain friends. But, you know, there's other people that were in that play that I don't see on a regular basis. Not that I would be rude to them if I saw them, but yeah. you just you you bond in a in a in a moment and then you go back to ordinary life and then that bond doesn't remain the same. And so there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of different, there's a lot of story that can be told there that I think they missed out on this one. Which I also, and this is again where I go into the narrative, as much as I love John Hughes, um, the narrative of the story, he tells that. And then in the last, I mean, five minutes of the movie, oh, we're going to have, you know, Judd Nelson and Molly Ringwald hook up and we're going to have Emilio Estevez and Ali Sheedy hook up. Right. Why? Like, why? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Why? For what reason? I mean, not only yeah. 
not only was there nothing that I mean, Molly Ringwald should should still be just slapping Judd Nelson in the face for everything he's done and talk <laughs> the way he's talked to her throughout the entire movie. Right. And then Ali Sheedy should be insulted that Emilio Estevez did not care at all until she looked pretty. Exactly. Yeah, that scene bothered me a lot. Yeah, and... And I'm going, and then you had this really great conversation about how when Monday comes around, y'all are going to act like Saturday, this Saturday never happened. And yet now y'all are trying to hook up here at the end. And mm-hmm. like, I right. did not get that at all. But, but like I said, but that was my favorite scene in terms of, it was a glimmer of this is the type of movie I wanted this to be. Now my mm-hmm. favorite scene, that's just, it's my favorite scene. And that's them... It's a short little bit, but that's mostly what this movie is, is just little bits. <laughs> um, right. It's just, the, it's them running through the 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 hallways, the hallways trying to avoid, yeah. yeah. There's just something I just like about that, because it, part of me goes, there's a real nature to that, too, that just in the normal school year, uh, the school day, mm-hmm. you know, if a teacher sees another kid who's skipping class and they're trying to stop them, you know, the kid's going right. darting around other halls and trying to to get away so the teacher can't catch them and turn them in uh, for skipping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the sliding across the floor as they're trying to stop and go the other way is, that's probably the most iconic scene for me uh, of this movie. Like, I, that's when I think of The Breakfast Club, I think of that scene. And it's, like I said, it's such a small little piece. But, uh, and maybe because it's actually action, there's there's something going on besides them just sitting around and talking. It, it stands out more, so. Oh, now um, see, if you're asking what, when someone says Breakfast Club, what's the scene that sticks that pops into my head? It's actually the three mm-hmm. male characters doing the little uh, arm oh, yeah. walk forward, back little dance when during the dance right, montage. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's up there too for sure. And I'm kind of like you. I don't, I don't have a, I don't really have a favorite scene in this one. There's nothing that's you know we say icon- iconic, but this isn't that type of blockbuster film or that kind. Of, like once again, that goes back to my nostalgic you know, something I remember as a kid, but I do like that scene where they're all in the circle, how, why they're in detention. And of course that whole, a lot of that was ad-libbed. Uh, John Hughes said he wanted them to just kind of riff on some ideas of their character. So to me, that scene is somewhat more elevated because I feel like the, the, each actor is given some creativity and being able to breathe some life into their character that obviously wasn't there on the page. I like the scenes with Vernon and the kids and them trying to, you know, avoid each other. And there's a couple of scenes are actually deleted or they're using the TV version that I think I remembered that I didn't see in this one. And one is where Vernon is in his office and they all walk by by the door or he's at a vending machine, I think. And they all try to like rush by the door really fast, except for Ali Sheedy's character. And she just stands at the door and just like waits for him to turn around. And like even like makes a face at him or something. And then as soon as she turns and walks out the door or walks out off out of the door frame, then he turns around. Nobody's there. And so yeah. that was a great scene that I wish I would have seen in this version. But that there's is not, this movie. Not- this movie is just it's it's a collection of a lot of pretty good scene. But in terms of a overall movie doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some some trivia, some scenes. Uh, maybe it'll spark our memory to think about some other things but <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i was gonna say i did like the lunch scene i thought that was pretty and it's not great but it was interesting to see the different lunches they all brought of course the scene with allison creating her sandwich with the pixie sticks 
straight sugar and then putting the Captain Crunch on top of it, I thought was pretty funny. But there's a scene where she's drawing and it looks like she's shaking dandruff to make uh, snow on the picture. But that was not dandruff, of course. It was actually Parmesan cheese. <laughs> but she did. So that wasn't real. But she did really eat the sandwich filled with pixie stick dust and unrefined sugar just as she looks like in the movie, and also gave her a sugar high that she, uh, they, had to, they had to shut down production for a couple hours for her to calm down. Yeah. And she, so. she immediately had diabetes. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think my uh, blood sugar went up just watching it. <laughs> yeah. So the switchblade used in the movie uh, by Judd Nelson actually belonged to Judd Nelson. He explained that he had it for protection sur- pur- uh, purposes. So, okay, uh, that, so Judd Nelson wore yes. his own clothes, used yes. his own knife. Yes. I ask again, spit. where did they spend a million dollars? Right, yeah. He also spit his own loogie, from what I understand. That was actually unplanned when he spit the in the air. The one he and spit then, and caught? Yeah, yeah oh. that was totally, totally ad-libbed. Oh. So, yeah. So nasty. That, that made me throw up a little bit of my mouth when that scene happened. <laughs> so you talked about the dancing scene, which I, once again, I think is that's another iconic scene. So originally only Claire was supposed to dance, but Molly Ringwald felt uncomfortable dancing alone. So John Hughes had the entire cast join in. Molly Ringwald said that she regrets this because not only did she think her dancing was bad, her inability to do the dance solo led to the artifice of the MTV type choreographed dancing, which she feels hurt the movie. But no. all the cast agreed that Ali Sheedy was the best dancer. First off, going back to the whole you know, narrative structure of the film, why would mm-hmm. it have just been Claire dancing? Like, what Yeah. What story element do we have that would have led to just Claire dancing? Second, if she's thinking the, like I said, the part where they're doing the, the dancing, the one that right. Judd Nelson and Ali Sheedy do where they shift their their feet back yeah. and forth. Right. If she's thinking that takes people away, how about Emilio Estevez when they're uh, smoking the marijuana? Emilio Estevez right. going into the room screaming and the glass shatters from the door. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of odd as well. The whole marijuana scene... And it's funny because the last movie that you and I talked about with uh, was nine to five, which had a marijuana scene as well. Two totally different types of scenes, but I didn't under besides them smoking marijuana, it didn't advance the story any. You know what I'm saying? Like I would have yeah. thought, like again, that would nothing advanced. There was no story <laughs> to advance. The story was we've got to show what teenagers would do to waste time during Saturday right. detention. Right. That was the story. Right. John Hughes said that the shattered glass was the only part of this movie that he, he regretted yeah, at the end. Because, you know, you, you talked about when you know, Bethany and I were on for 9 to 5, at least with that that marijuana, they go into the world of fantasy. Right. right. This one doesn't, but then it has that moment which you sit there and go, did he actually shatter that glass? And if so, mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier, why does not Vernon hear that. Yeah, come in running? Um, right. I mean, it, it's even when he hears uh, Bender fall through the ceiling. Yes. Yeah. When he he does hear that, and when he runs in, you see him look up and around, and I'm going, how does he not see a giant hole somewhere in that right. ceiling? Right. Yeah. There's just there there's so much of this that I'm just going. I need explanation. Yeah. And yeah. I got none. At least you know, Ferris Bueller bordered on fantastic. You know. Yes. Yeah. And even though it was it was grounded in the real world, you believe that you know if Ferris is 
bigger than the real world. And so you were accepting of some of the things he was able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, Weird Science is fantastical. So yes, uh, yeah, you've got that yeah. element of it. And again, I've never seen 16 Candles. So yeah, there's just like that. You're watching that scene. You see the glass break. You're like, wait, what just happened? Um, <laughs> so yeah, again, I don't mean to bash the movie. I really don't. <laughs> I, I appreciate it for what it is. I just... Right. I don't know why it exists. That's really, really my 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 question. It definitely sticks out from the other movies that he's done, and not necessarily in the best way. So, interesting fact: it was originally suggested that there would be several sequels to this movie, which I know brings Laramie such joy, uh, <laughs> occurring <laughs> occurring every ten years, in which the Breakfast Club would get back together. This did not For come to what? pass. <laughs> <laughs> Why? This did, right. Because he thought this was such a great idea that he, he had to keep going. So this did not come to pass due to the volatile relationship between John Hughes and Judd Nelson. Hughes stated that he would never work with Nelson again. Hughes was also planning for Hall and Ringwald to, and him to team up again in both Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and have the three of them keep making movies like that, almost like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland made all those Andy Hardy teen films back in the 40s one after the other, playing different characters and in different movies and with the same actors. But Ringwald and Hall had other plans. While Molly did appear in Pretty in Pink in 1986, Hall said no to the ducky role, which was played by... John Cryer. John Cryer, thank you. I saw his face. I couldn't think of his name. Uh, He said this was due to a redundancy issue, that it was too much like the love triangle they were squared off in in 16 Candles. Reportedly, John Hughes was hurt and never got over the grudge. He refocused on Ringwald, hoping she would star in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986 and Some Kind of Wonderful in 1987, which again were teens caught in a love triangle type movies. But at this point, after appearing on the cover of Time, Molly wanted to spread her wings and try other projects. Ringwald's and Hall's rejection of Hughes at this point hurt him deeply and in fact led to end of his whole John Hughes teen movie genre. Without his muses to inspire him, Hughes lost interest in the genre and stopped making those movies. And in effect, the genre he had invented died at that point. In an op-ed piece Molly wrote after Hughes died many years later, she compared this to Michael and Wendy Darling leaving Neverland and Peter Pan shutting down Neverland out of spite forever as a result. She said Hughes held a grudge against them for rejecting him and effectively stopping making teen movies altogether. He also never really spoke to either one of them again, either up until the time he died, and never collaborated on any other films, leaving for dead the John Hughes teen movie genre. Hughes stopped making teen movies and switched to making kids' movies like Uncle Buck in 1989 and the incredibly successful Home Alone in 1990, which at that point was the most successful comedy ever made. But many felt the magic was gone, that without his teen muses, Hall and Ringwald, and without the comfort of the genre he created, Hughes' spirit and creativity sort of died, and the movies he made after were never quite the same. Both Hall and Ringwald, as well as others, have spoken extensively about this in interviews. Okay, I have one problem with that whole thing. <laughs> okay. And you and I have done this on, on this podcast before. Yeah. Did they forget about planes, trains, and automobiles? Yeah. <laughs> Well, he made other, I mean, well, those are movies that he, well, he, even going back to Uncle Buck and uh, Home Alone, he didn't direct those. No, he, he wrote, wrote those. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Chris but Columbus to, directed those. Yeah. So. But, but to say that, you know, he, uh, I mean, it almost made it sound yeah. like he was never successful again. And I'm no. just going, yeah. no. I mean, he did, he did, she's having a baby. No, now that was bad. Oh, this, 
Yeah, at the same time, <laughs> I'm saying I'm saying he still kept making movies, but yeah, train, Plane, Trains, and Automobiles was, was was still very successful. I think they're just I think this was just speaking more of like the teen movie. Like they, yeah. I think they thought he was just going to keep making teen movies the rest of his life, and. It, I think it became pretty evident, I think, between Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful. He was basically telling the same story over and over again, different settings and somewhat different situations. I think yeah, it was best that. that they left. Yeah. No, I agree. And and I would just, you know, from my perspective, I would think a director wouldn't want to get kind of shoehorned into you're only this type of director. So Right, right. You know, if if that was what he planned, I think it maybe worked out better for him to to have gone away from it. Um, yeah, because I don't know what the time frame is of when he wrote what, but you know, if he hadn't, maybe we wouldn't have gotten Planes, Trains, and Automobile and Home Alone, which is pretty much a, a considered a classic nowadays. Right. Uh, right. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even Uncle Buck, Great Outdoors, which of course Uncle Buck is better, but. Um, but yeah, there was also this kind of weird relationship with Hughes, who was in his like late 20s, early 30s, hanging out with Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald when they were like 16, 17. And people thought that was kind of weird because they would go to parties and all these different functions. So it seemed like he was really trying to relive his teenage years again, kind of through them. And I think eventually they kind of realized, you know, we're growing up and we're not going to be 16 and 17 as you want to keep making these teen movies, you want to move into something a little bit more adult or just do something different. Thinking about all Anthony Michael Hall, he grew, a, he got very tall, obviously, because when we, you weren't in the episode, we talked about vacation, but he had a growth spurt during vacation, ended up being taller than, uh, is it Beverly D'Angelo who played the mother? Yeah. And then in this movie, he had a growth spurt. And at the beginning of the movie, he's shorter than Judd Nelson. And by the end, he's like two inches taller. So, <laughs> so he had a couple of growth spurts uh during those but he's a pretty tall guy so do you know how many of these cast members showed up in episodes of psych Ooh, oh okay so i know I got you Anthony, excited yeah because i love psych <laughs> and I'm i know gonna, i'm gonna get so upset if i don't get this so i know ali sheedy was because she was a very yep. famous uh, uh character um right. i'm pretty sure anthony michael hall was yep um I, I, I'm picturing Molly Ringwald. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't think Emilio Estevez ever appeared on Psych, because that would have stuck in my head. But I do think... So I'm thinking every... Now, I, now if you're counting Paul Gleason and the janitor, I'm going to say no to both of them. But if you're just talking about the kids, I'm going to say all of them except Emilio Estevez. All right, so... Ali Sheedy appears as Mr. Yang in the finale of seasons three, four, and mm-hmm. five. Like I said, that was a big Judd, character. Yeah. Judd Nelson appears as Dr. Stephen Reedman in season four, yeah, episode I 13. Pictured him with the glasses and all. Yep. 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 Molly Ringwald appears as Nurse McElroy in season six, episode six. Okay. And Anthony Michael Hall appeared as Harris Trout in season seven. Yep. So yes, only Emilio Estevez was never on Psych. <laughs> yes, I get to hold on to my pride there as a Psych fan.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's go ahead and wrap this thing up and talk about box office and critical reception. So Universal Pictures released the film in cinemas on February 15th, 1985. The film debuted at number three at the box office that weekend behind Beverly Hills Cop and Witness. Two movies I prefer over this one. I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, It grossed over $45 million domestically and over $51 million worldwide. The film was a box office success given its $1 million budget, which the mystery still remains. Where (laughs) did the million dollars go? (laughs) So, but currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it's at 89% on the tomato meter with a 92% audience score on IMDb. It's 7.8 out of 10 with a 66 on Metacritic. So I think I know where this is going, but which, are you Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb? I'm I'm probably in the middle of all of it. Like I, I yeah, I get why it's that high because it is such a beloved, treasured movie by a lot of people. But for me, looking at it as a narrative, as mm-hmm. something that you know speaks to me, not to sound you know snobbish or anything, but you know to to look mm-hmm. at it as the narrative structure of storytelling that movies are supposed to be i honestly i'd put it in the 70s maybe low 80s yeah 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 i'm i'm the same i'm i'm like high 70s um and I, once again i go back to it it, it did not age well um there have ages been well about than the, revenge of the nerds and porkies well that true <laughs> true very true and i think like we both said if i mean there there's been some talk of reboots this How one could be one it? of those that if it, I think if you develop the characters more and I think like you said, not make it in a, in one setting, like let's, let's give a, let's give a half the movie is that Saturday. And then the other half is Monday or the week following and seeing how they interact after that. So, but not a complete, like, you know, shot for shot, re- not, not a remake, but a more of a reboot of let's kind of take this idea and, and give it a little bit more life and more development, you know, in the right hands, it could be really good, but at the same time and not so great hands, it could be worse. So, <laughs> but at the same time, on the other side of that, if, if there was going to be a stage production of this, I would want to see the stage production because I would like to see this in that kind of setting and see if it hits me differently than the movie does. Yeah, I agree. That's my, that's my take. Let me ask you a question. You kind of, sure. I I probably could have asked this a lot earlier into the episode, but this is something that's always kind of puzzled me. I don't know if I'm just (laughs) missing. I just don't know if I'm missing it or whatnot. Why, (laughs) why are they called the breakfast club? Why do they call themselves the breakfast club? You mean in the movie why they call themselves the Breakfast Club? Why they yeah. sign the letter at the end? Yeah. I don't know. Because yeah. that's the name of the movie they chose? <laughs> yeah, but but again, but why? Like, this this isn't a... That would be different if, let's say, like you just said, which is why I thought about mm-hmm. it. You know, if this was instead of it taking place over one whole day, if it was y'all have a week's worth of morning detention. Yeah. Yeah. So every morning at seven o'clock, seven thirty, whatever the time would be for the for them, 
you know, they have to come to school before the school is open, before anybody's there, and they have to sit there, you know, just the five of them, and it's five days worth. And so we do get to see a progression from each of those days. And that would make more sense to be called The Breakfast Club because they're there in the mornings. I didn't get why they're called The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Well, going back to originally, the original title was The Lunch Bunch, which makes a little bit more sense because you... But it's a horrible title. You see them eating lunch. Like, that is part of the date. Right. Yeah, it's still a horrible title. Breakfast Club rolls off the tongue better, but yeah, there's no breakfast involved. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. I will go back and say we talked about favorite scenes, and I totally forgot this, and so hopefully we can get this in, but the scene with Vernon and the janitor, that was actually my favorite scene watching it now. I think that's the thing of seeing it as an adult versus seeing it as a teenager or, or you know someone younger yeah because hearing their conversation where they're talking where, which i missed this until i was reading the notes that at the beginning they show a picture of like former students and they have man of the year and that's the janitor's picture yeah. so that you know he once had some esteem and for whatever reason we don't know what happened but now he's the janitor which adds some you know life to the comment he makes when they're kind of messing with him when he comes in and starts cleaning up and he's like, I see everything happens at this school, you know. But then Vernon is having this conversation about, you know, what scares me is this is our future. This is what we're what I'm going to see in 20 years. And he says, yeah, but when you were their age, what were you doing? And so once again, I would want to see that movie. Yeah. I want to see more of their conversation about, hey, as adults, we're we're concerned about the future, but we've got to let, you know, let them figure out who they are as well. How can we better develop them to become functioning adults, seeing the state they're in now or something like that? So. Yeah, and that's that's my thing about it, too, is that it's, like I said earlier, it's a bunch of scene. Mm-hmm. Nothing is fleshed out. Nothing, right. there's no arc from the beginning to the end. There's no reveal, really. Right, right. I mean, some people would argue the finding, again, my, my scene of them sitting in the circle. You know, finding out that Anthony Michael Hall's character was contemplating uh, suicide and all. Right. But but to me, again, not to diminish uh, anyone who experiences that, but I just, I was like, but I don't, I haven't attached to the character enough for that to be right. a shock. Right. Um, yeah. And so. Even in that scene, like, yeah, I agree. Even in that scene, he's, it's becoming a very vulnerable, a very intense moment scene and then they start cracking jokes and then it's completely lost mm. and you know maybe that's he didn't say well that's how teenagers are they're not going to stay in that moment but i felt it kind of robbed the moment some as well like i really wanted to see some kind of resolution to that besides them just that was a stupid thing to do or that was a you know whatever he says being goofy or whatever so well we talked a lot about it uh maybe you listen listeners have uh some uh contrary thoughts to our thoughts <laughs> Maybe you liked it a lot better than we did, and that's fine. So uh, send us an e- send us an email and let us know you know your thoughts on it and uh, join the conversation. So there'll be information about that as we close out this episode. All right, Larry, I appreciate being a part of this episode of the '80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talked about the Breakfast Club. So uh, tell us a little bit about Moving Panels. Uh, well, you know, Moving Panels is a podcast about movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. And Tim has joined me several times on that. We are actually in the middle of our March Madness, talking about Justice yes. League uh, and all things Justice League as we're leading into the Snyder Cut, which, as of this episode dropping, the Snyder Cut has been released. Expect a reaction to that uh, on Moving Panels, where Tim will be part of my panel 
on that one of of people discussing that but i always enjoy coming on to to this podcast to get to take a break from superhero movies and talk about uh, some of these great movies of the 80s cool i appreciate it and if you didn't get a chance to go back and listen to the moving panels episode where we got together to talk about the original justice league from 2017 definitely go check that out that was a lot of fun and we had a good time discussing that movie you want to hear us rip a, rip a film apart that's the one to go yeah. listen to <laughs> yeah again i right. pre- i appreciate breakfast club but yes oh, that 2017 yeah. justice league all right thanks for listening see you guys next time bye Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message to the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback.